Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. As Phil said, it seems like we're missing a few people this morning, and I know that there's some that are joining online, there's some that are su- struggling with sickness. Uh, Ricky is one of them. Um, be in prayer for for Ricky as he's, we know that he has been tested positive for COVID. Um, certainly want to make sure that we're praying for him and for others who are struggling with, with sickness. Well, again, good morning and welcome this morning. Well, we made it. We made it. This is the last Sunday of 2020. Well, we've got a few more days left, I guess, uh, in the year. But for all intents and purposes, as far as church goes, we've made it. This year has been one for the ages, has it not? I'm glad, I'm thankful that it is almost in the rearview mirror, all but a few days. We have uh, dealt with a lot in 2020, and I am praying for all of our sakes that we will get a reprieve in 2021. I don't know about you, but I am weary. I'm weary of not being able to give you guys a hug. I'm weary of having to keep my distance, you know, that social distancing thing, uh, the phrase or wording that I'd never even heard of up until this year. And I'm weary of living in the midst of so, so much turmoil. I know and I'm, I'm certain that many of you are weary as well. I see it in your faces. I hear it in your voices. But as I said a few Sundays ago, I'm confident that as followers of Christ, as those who are in Christ, we are on the winning team. I'm convinced that God will finish what he has started in us. In him, according to Romans 8, the Apostle Paul, in him we are more than conquerors. He says in Romans 8:35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. You see, we can be assured of these promises, these promises that we cannot be separated from the love of God. We can be assured because we can be certain, we can be certain of the one who gives those promises. Exodus 34.8 says of our Lord that he is compassionate and gracious He is slow to anger, and He's abounding in loving kindness. And we can live triumphantly without fear, knowing that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this is a promise that we can rely on. As I said earlier, I see the weariness in all of your faces. I know this year has been hard, and I know that each and every one of you hope for something better in 2021. Most of us, if we're honest, desire for a return to normalcy, right? A time when we don't have to wear masks. A time where we don't have to social distance. A time where we can all just come and enjoy uh, being together. Enjoy our families as well. Well, beloved, while we can be assured that we are triumphant in Christ, we cannot be assured that things will get better from here. I hate to say that. We can't be confident that the world will return to be the way it was before. 
Even with our current hardships, the vast majority who have ever lived have things worse than us, right? Periodically, there are events which profoundly change the world. Events such as the Civil War in America, or both world wars, World War I and World War II. 9-11 would be one of those events that, that happened. Well, see, those events come and go, yet afterward we are fundamentally different than we were before. I believe 2020 is one of those events. I refer to the year because so many things have occurred, and I don't want to say that C word, you know, the one that we talk about all the time. But so many things have occurred, it's really difficult to pinpoint just one event. But I will say, as hard as it is, as hard as 2020 was, I believe that we need to gird ourselves for what is to come. We need to ready ourselves spiritually for the onslaught which may be upon us. Again, I'm praying for a reprieve. I'm hoping for a reprieve. But we can't be assured of it. As the affliction presses down, though, we must remember that Christ has promised to build His church. And that promise never changes. As trials come upon us, we need to see the world as God sees the world. We need to see the church as God sees the church. We need to see ourselves as God sees us. Well, this morning's sermon has been a while in the making. Last month, a friend posted some verses, or posted these particular verses as he read through James. And he posted the text, and, and the text caused quite a bit of discussion on his page due to various viewpoints that uh, people who were reading it. The question was, and the discussion was, what does it mean to be a friend of the world? What does it mean to be a friend of the world? I truly believe the answer to this question is crucial as we enter this new year. Let me read this morning. We're going to be in James chapter 4. Let me read James 4, 4 through 8. Read along with me if you have your text of Scripture. James writes, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We come to you, we ask as we approach this year-end as we approach this text, that, Lord, you would show us that you would give us insight into how we should view this world in light of all that's going on, how we should view this culture in, all the, in light of all that's going on.
But Lord, more than that, we pray that you would draw us near to you. That as a church, that we would, through our trials and difficulties, that we would be drawn nearer to you, not pushed away. Father, I pray this morning that you would be with us as I preach, that you would be, that I would just be the mouthpiece for your word, and that the power would come through the Holy Spirit, that I would preach with conviction in the Holy Spirit, and the listener would be able to understand with clarity. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Now, some of you may know and recall that I preached through James, this little letter of James, a couple of years ago, and I'm thankful for the wisdom of this marvelous epistle. I believe that there are many parallels between our current situation and the situation faced by the recipients of this letter, James's letter. We're not facing, I want you to understand, we're not facing the severity of their trials. But we can learn many lessons from them as the birth pains increase in our current generation. You can be assured that we are going through those birth pains, and they're getting closer and closer together. And as we face suffering and difficulty as Christians, the question then becomes this. The question becomes this, and I want you to get this. Will our trials draw us nearer to God and His righteousness or drive us away from Him and to our sin? Say that again. Will our trials draw us near to God and His righteousness or drive us away from Him and to our or toward our sin? Well, an astute reading and study of James reveals this question. And, and you really should be asking yourself as we progress today and as we close in on 2021. James clearly reveals this problem in James 5, 19-20. He says this. He, he says to his readers, My brethren... If any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now the question is, what would cause a Christian to stray from the truth? What would cause, said another way, what would cause one who calls themselves a Christian to stray from the truth? Now I would argue that Many times, it's trials and suffering paired with a temptation for worldly comfort, which becomes the main reason for Christians to stray from the truth. Ultimately, ultimately, the root of this is pride that will not submit to God's sovereign authority or trust God's sovereign providence in their life. Doesn't trust God in the difficulties. Doesn't trust God when bad things happen, instead of saying, God, you are the reason for this in a good way, meaning that you brought it upon me for my growth, but you end up blaming God. Why did you put me in this position, God? This can't be right. This can't be the right way. Brethren, worldly comfort always comes at a high price. It may even come at the cost of your salvation. If you wrap your head around that concept, you will understand James's letter. Now, 
I don't have time this morning to completely unpack this epistle, but I want to give you a few high points. The author of this epistle is James, and he is the half-brother of our Lord Jesus. He probably came to believe in Christ after the Lord's earthly ministry. And after becoming a believer, James shepherded the church in Jerusalem. Now, in this letter, he's writing to, to Jews who had come to believe in Christ. Many of these saints had probably come to know Christ at Pentecost or shortly thereafter. They were in Jerusalem at that time, but had been dispersed or scattered due to persecution. Many of them had endured great hardship because of their belief in Jesus as their Messiah. James encouraged them to endure these great trials, knowing that God uses those trials to sanctify his people. That's really chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. He knew that they couldn't endure without God's wisdom. Without God's wisdom, they would be driven and tossed by the wind. That's uh, James 1, 5 through 8. He also knew that they would be tempted to turn away from Christ. Some had already done so. Now, James also writes to a second group of people in this letter. These were people who were on the fence, potentially ready to bolt, ready to move away from Christ. Their trials and their difficulties had come upon them, and they were being forced or pushed to give up their worldly comfort. They were trying to claim Christ and live their worldly lives. According to James, these people were double-minded and unstable. They spoke outwardly of their faith, yet their actions betrayed the truth of their hearts. Unless something changed, and this is what we want to get and be, understand completely, unless something changed, their faith was dead and was good for nothing. That was his message in chapter 2. Now, in some cases, this group, this group in the middle, these, these ones that are on the fence, this group even betrayed the poor brethren who were already suffering great hardship by turning them away in their hour of greatest need. They also showed partiality, partiality to a third group of folks in this letter. Let's call them the wicked rich. These were, these were an entirely ungodly bunch of people. Uh, they, they took a complete advantage of the poor brethren. They, they seemed to be, this, this rich, wicked rich people, seemed to be associated with the church at least from an economical standpoint, or at least from a money standpoint, if you will. James has harsh words for this group because of their mistreatment of the brethren. In James 5.1, he warns them of the miseries which were coming upon them. They had withheld pay from the poor, who depended upon those wages for their livelihood. And James warns them that God will, in fact, judge them for that. Now, I would argue, I would argue that the same three groups are associated with the church today. Make sure you understand that. The same three groups that we see in James are associated with the church today. Oh, they're different faces and they're different people. But there are the same groups in the church. Now, the church in America has experienced relative peace for many years, and the United States is an extraordinarily rich country. Therefore, these groups are not clearly delineated, but you can believe they exist. And here's, here's the deal. Here's the thing. In times of trial, in times of difficulty, these groups will become obvious. They will, these groups will become more and more clear. Now, of the three groups, 
James has the most to say about those planted firmly on the fence, the ones who had, could go either way. Now, I would argue that this is the group that James is uh, addressing in our text today. And I think, and I would argue, that they are the closest parallel to our situation in the church as we approach 2021. We have a large group of people in the middle. They have not committed completely in their hearts, but they're not that wicked, rich group of people on the other side. They're firmly in the middle. Now, many of us in the church exist within this large group in the middle. We have professed faith in Christ, yet, this is the key, our faith has not been tested by fire. You see, we live in nice homes and we drive nice cars. We live comfortable lives, yet I wonder what will happen with, when and if we face great difficulty. When we face something like we're faced with something that, when we are faced, that is, with something that makes 2020 look like a walk in the park. Is that time coming? Is that time coming? At that time, if and when it comes, we will be tempted by the comforts of this world. Mark my words. If and when this time comes that I'm speaking of, the time of great difficulty, we will be tempted by the comforts of this world. Church, that is the situation the brethren faced in James's day. Therefore, as we move toward 2021 with its potential for increasing hardship, we can learn much from this letter. As we approach an uncertain future, James gives us three instructions to draw near to God. Remember the question I asked. We want to keep going back to that. Will our trials cause us to draw near to God, or will they separate us from God? That's the question that must be answered. So let's look at James's first instruction. He says, James tells us that we must, you must assess your standing. Look at your text. James says, you adulteresses. James's address here may seem to you as abrupt, but I can assure you that James loves his people. In most places in this letter, James addresses his people as his brethren. And in several places, he uses an even more affectionate title of my beloved brethren. And James, is, if you read through James, if you study through James, you'll find that James is, a, is very pastoral as he interacts with his people. Now, what you have to understand about James is the way he has written the letter makes it seem stilted, if you will. But as you unpack what he is saying, you will find that he's very pastoral and he's a, a, an incredible shepherd to his people. As the shepherd of the church at Jerusalem, James, it's clear that James dearly loved his people. He felt a special connection. Even though they were scattered, even though they were dispersed abroad because of persecution, he felt a special connection to them. So his current address really represents an abrupt departure from that norm. It indicates really, if you will, the seriousness of the matter at hand. Now, he says, you adulteresses, which seems to allude to the Old Testament prophetic books. 
the prophets frequently compared the covenant relationship between Yahweh and his people to a marriage relationship, the, the covenant of marriage. So when Israel's idolatry threatened that bond, that covenantal bond, the, the prophets had harsh words for Israel's actions. In Jeremiah 3.20, the, Jeremiah called them treacherous. And in Hosea, God commanded the prophet to marry a prostitute depicting Israel as an adulteress because of their unfaithfulness faithfulness to, to Yahweh. You see, they pursued other gods. They pursued the gods of the other nations, the nations around them. Therefore, they were completely unfaithful. They were prostitutes. Now, during Jesus' ministry, he called those who rejected him an evil and adulterous generation. So clearly, Jesus was speaking of those who rejected him, who rejected his earthly ministry, who rejected him as their Messiah. That he was speaking to unbelievers. The first time I preached this passage a couple of years ago, I taught that James was clearly speaking to unbelievers based on this hard, harsh language. But the more I come to understand James' James's message, I believe he's talking to those who have claimed allegiance to Christ, those in the middle, those who are firmly planted on the fence. They've claimed allegiance to Christ, yet their lives indicate something completely different. Their religion was not a true religion. Their faith was suspect, to say the least. Most likely, according to chapter 2, they had a dead faith. They were adulteresses who were unfaithful to Christ. They chased after their pleasures and their comfort, which caused great conflict in the church. You can see that in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Consequently, James gives them a stern warning. This is Pastor James, the shepherd, giving them a stern warning, similar to Exodus 33, the watchman warning. Look at your text. He warns them. He says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? James says, Are you not keenly aware Are you not keenly aware that your friendship with the world is putting you in open hostility toward God? This word translated friendship has an idea of an emotional attachment. Do we not get emotionally attached to the world? Do we not get emotionally attached to our creature comforts? This 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 word conveys the the concept of attachment. In other words, James is speaking of this uh, emotional attachment to the world. He's describing a a strong affection, not wanting to lose something. He's saying that these people have a deep desire for the world and all that it stands for. Uh, The ancient view of friendship sheds light on the seriousness of his charge. In today's world, we speak rather casually of friends. I mean, we have, uh, I don't know how many Facebook friends you have, uh, people that you haven't even seen in years, and we call them friends, right? Facebook friends. And then we have the people the, that are in a, a, maybe a tighter circle, but we have very few people that we call uh, really, really close friends. And some of us have almost none. But in James's world, friendship involved sharing of all things and a unity that was both spiritual and physical. 
You see, trials, tri- the trials that had come upon the, the folks in, in James's letter uh, had revealed that they had a desire to follow the world in its ways and, and much more than they desired Christ. You see, the world, and when James speaks of the world, he's speaking of, of an establishment that's antagonistic toward God. They hate God. The objective of, of the world is the glory of self, the fulfillment of pleasure, and self-indulgent and self-satisfaction. It's all about the self. Do we not see that in our own culture? Uh, every commercial that you uh, listen to mostly uh, talk about the self and, and pleasuring yourself, giving yourself pleasure. See, the world is hostile to God and opposes His will. The world hates everything about God, especially His truth. Yet they will strip the truth of its power and use it to their advantage, will they not? They speak about the truth, but they don't want to do anything to do with the God of all truth. James says that to embrace the world and its system is open hostility to God. It's, it's really hard to get around this meaning or this ter- of this term hostility. Literally, if you love the world, then you're at enmity with God. <coughs> if you love the world, then you said another way, you hate God. God is your enemy. In James's time, evidently there were some that had slipped into the church unnoticed. Now Jude calls them ungodly persons who turned the, the grace of our God into licentiousness. They denied Christ. And they were probably there for, for the sake of personal gain. They hate God, they hate Him, but they love the pleasures derived from the people of God. This is those rich, w- wicked rich people that we were talking about. <coughs> Yet there were many on the fence. Many on the fence. They claimed love for God, but they were sorely tempted by the world. From a human's perspective, they could go either way. They're the ones that James seeks to turn from their sin to serve a living and true God. If they continue in their sin, they will remain enemies of God. That is the the stark truth. If they continue in their sin, they will remain enemies of God. But if they repent, they will become friends of God. Here's the great struggle. Giving up the world means they would experience great pain. Great pain. Oh, man. Thank you, Omar. Giving up the world means that they would experience great pain as they turn away from the comforts of the world. Yet they can't continue to pursue their comforts and pleasures and follow Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 5, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. And those, Romans 8, 8, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Church can't have it both ways. You must assess your standing. You must see things how God sees them. You can't have a deep affection for the world and its comforts and truly trust Christ, or possess, that is, Christ. 
You see, love of the world can be subtle. The world has so much to offer, right? No, really, it does. It does. Right now, we live in a culture that allows us to have it both ways. We can claim Christ outwardly and secretly love the world. But this could be quickly ending. The world beckons. Just take a, a, a little bite. Just a little nibble. God won't care if I compromise in this one little area. But James warns in James chapter 1 that when lust, when our lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. <clears throat> Beloved, what happens when the time comes when you have to declare your allegiance to the world either to the world and your sin or to Christ, you won't be able to stand in the middle any longer. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm here to warn. I know from personal knowledge, personal experience, I know we can struggle with worldly things. I understand it's a battle. It's a battle that we must fight to avoid falling prey to the world. Said another way, the world is heavy upon us. It's beckoning us. Have you ever seen a, you guys ever seen a Venus flytrap? They're pretty fascinating, are they not? Their prey, usually an insect, climbs into their jaws, and the plant has little trigger hairs, which allows it to sense the, the, the insect's presence. And then the jaws snap shut, right? They snap shut. You know, none of this works if the insect refuses to climb into the plant's jaws, right? That's a great lesson for us, isn't it? You must stay away from the jaws of this world. They will snap shut on you. You need to assess your standing before the Lord brings us to James's second instruction. We must acknowledge the struggle. We must acknowledge the struggle. We've already seen this. We've already seen it. We've already hit on it. But James says, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Here, James doubles down on his assertion. It's impossible to be a friend of the world without making yourself into an enemy of, the God, of, of our, our Lord. Jesus puts it this way. Now you can tell, when you've, you've studied through the book of James, you can tell that James spent a lot of time with Jesus, being his brother. But Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 6, 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Then he says this, You cannot serve God and wealth. And here's... Here's the point. Is it not all about wealth? Is it not all about our comforts? That's how the world draws us in. That's how the world gets us to come into the jaws of that Venus flytrap. The world beckons us, yet, yet making ourselves friends of the world is deadly. 
the world or the word translated wishes conveys the idea of seeing the world and making plans to join in. When we make plans to, to experience the pleasures of this world, in effect, we're making ourselves an enemy of God. Now, let me be clear. I am not speaking of someone who periodically falls and struggles with sin. This is, this is the person who, this is that we're talking, what I'm talking about is the person, or what James is talking about is the person who makes the decision to follow after the world. They are completely responsible for this decision. Therefore, they are accountable for the implications of that decision. In James's day, it was someone who had declared, a follow, declared themselves a follower of Christ. They had declared that Jesus was the Messiah, and they had turned away. They were turning away from following Christ and going after the world. Beloved, when we make a decision, when we make the decision to follow the world, we have no excuses. We have, we have none. There are no excuses. You will not, if you make that decision, you will not be able to stand before God in judgment and beg your way out of it. Yet, you must acknowledge the struggle. The world is heavy upon us. And we must make plans to battle against it. James certainly sees that it's a great struggle. Look at your text. In verse 5, it says, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. The, this verse, quite frankly, is incredibly difficult. It's difficult to understand, it's difficult to translate, it's difficult to interpret, it's difficult all the way around. But I think there's great fruit here if we work hard to understand it. The phrase starts harmlessly, but it, produ it introduces great difficulty. He says, do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose or, in, or is in vain? In other words, you see the Scripture, do you believe it has no value? Of course, the answer to that question is no. It, it has great value. But here's the problem. He doesn't actually quote Scripture in this verse. He, he follows up by making the statement, He, that would be the Lord, jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. Now, for our purposes today, I'm just going to give you my interpretation of this verse. If you want to know more, you're welcome to listen to the first time I preached this text, or you can discuss it with me later. But here's what I would say is going on here. I would argue that verse 5, that James is using verse 5 to substantiate the point of verse 4. James's readers in verse 4 are committing spiritual adultery by following the world instead of their only true spouse, the Lord Jesus. Verse 4 teaches that God desires His people to be holy and unreservedly His. And this has been true from the beginning. So verse 4 produces a, a stern warning against any flirtation with the attitudes and values of this world. Therefore, I would argue that verse 5 speaks of God's jealousy for us when we flirt with the world. Did you get that? I would argue that verse 5 speaks of God's jealousy for us when we flirt with the world. 
Now, I would also argue that he's not referring to the Holy Spirit, but he's referring to the spirit of life or breath of life that God has given us. As such, as such, this phrase reminds us that God has a claim on us because he has created us and he has given us the spirit or breath of life. Now, I think that the progression of this passage helps us understand what James is saying. Let me sum it up in one sentence. Here's what James is saying. You can't be a friend of the world and be a friend of God at the same time because God won't play second fiddle to anything in your life. In other words, it is all or nothing with God because He is a jealous God. Again, that doesn't mean we don't struggle at times. That doesn't mean that we don't waffle back and and forth at times. We are still sinners. But the point is, is that God wants us completely. But that jealousy is one of the difficulties of this verse. How can God be jealous and righteous at the same time, right? We, if we're jealous, it's sin. So how can God be jealous and still be righteous? Well, he's jealous for his own glory. And since he is the greatest thing in existence, his glory must be the ultimate purpose of everything he has created. It's for their good. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says it this way, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. As I said, one of the difficulties of this verse is that James doesn't actually quote Scripture, though this principle is an overarching principle of Scripture. The Bible is clear in this regard. Exodus 34, 14, he says, You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. He will not give his glory to another. Isaiah 42, 8, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. So even though James doesn't quote a single scripture, he does give an undeniable theme of scripture that God is a jealous God and he is jealous for the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. We are his and he will not share with another. He demands our total allegiance. And if we're totally honest with ourselves, we realize that this is a huge struggle. Actually, it's more than a struggle. It's impossible. It's impossible. In Mark 10, you may recall the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler. In that account, Jesus turned to the young man, even though he seemed to be, even though, turned the young man away, that is, even though he seemed to be seeking him. The man, if you remember, if you recall, you can turn it if you'd like, but if, if you recall, the man was unwilling to give up his possessions. You know, Jesus said, go and sell all that you own and come and follow me. He was unwilling to do so. He was unwilling to give up everything and come follow Christ. The the disciples who were watching this whole thing, uh, they were astonished. They were astonished. They, they, they saw this young man, and they were like this rich young ruler, as, this, as uh, the, your Bible may call him, this rich young ruler. They, they were astonished that he couldn't be saved. 
He seemed like, from a worldly point of view, he seemed like the perfect candidate for salvation. Here's what Jesus said. Mark 10, 24. This is hard, right? He said this, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, how hard is that, Jesus? How hard is it for a camel to go through the eye of a needle? Now, I've heard some people try to say that it's, this needle is a gate in Jerusalem and the camel couldn't go. That's not true. It can't be. What Jesus is saying is it's impossible. A camel cannot pass through the eye of a needle. And the reason I say that is because of what is said after this. This is Mark 10, 26. He sa- they, the, it says, the text says, They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? If it's that difficult, who can be saved? Look at, you may not be there, but if you are, look at 10, 27. Mark 10, 27. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible. So people ask if if Jesus meant the the whole camel through the needle thing. Right here, it's impossible. With people it's impossible. It's impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. Beloved, the struggle is real. Every waking moment we are tugged and pulled by the world. The rich young ruler couldn't be saved because he was unwilling to give up the world. It was impossible for him to enter the kingdom of God with those riches tied to his back. He couldn't do it. He had to go sell all that he owned, but he was unwilling. But Jesus says that which is impossible with us is possible with God. You cannot do this on your own. You are destined to fail. You cannot save yourself. Get this. That kind of faith is a dead faith which is good for nothing. You see the connection now. I hope you see the connection of the people in the middle who are proclaiming Christ. They were saying, I'm following Christ, but they were unwilling to truly give everything up to follow Christ. They wanted the world, and they wanted Christ, and they couldn't have both. Again, the struggle's real. We all need to acknowledge it. We all need to. This leads us to James's third instruction. You must admit the solution. Look at your text in James 4, 6. One of the, you know, but, that word but, sometimes is the biggest word in the, in the Bible. But, he gives a greater grace. As great as that struggle is, God's grace is greater. You see, salvation is a gift of God's grace. We, we've said it many times. We quote this verse, these verses many times. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Some people accuse, have accused James of not teaching grace, right? He's teaching a work salvation because of James chapter 2 and is speaking of the, dead, the, the, the faith without, without works as a dead faith. 
But James is not teaching, James is in no way teaching a work salvation. James is saying that we are saved by grace through faith. God unilaterally, by himself, without your help, saves by his grace. In other words, he chooses to save us despite of who we are or what we've done. And when he saves us, we become a friend by his grace. Jerry Bridges has this to say, this to say about our need for God's grace. Our worst days are never so bad that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. You see, we need God's grace every day. And according to James, God freely gives it. But what is it? What is grace? Matthew Henry says that grace is the free, undeserved goodness and favor of God to mankind. According to H.A. Ironside, he says grace is the very opposite of merit. Grace is not only undeserved favor, but it is favor shown to the one who deserves the very opposite. John MacArthur says this similarly. God's grace is his unmerited favor toward the wicked, unworthy sinners by which he delivers them from condemnation and death, end quote. John Piper says this about grace. He says, God's grace is not simple leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling of God not to sin. Grace is the power, not just the pardon. So the grace of God is undeserved, and it is more powerful than simple leniency. And grace not only saves, but keeps us saved. And not only keeps us saved, but penetrates every aspect of your life, making it impossible for you to embrace, to fully embrace the world. you understand? You cannot embrace the, the world if you are saved by His grace. You may fail, you may uh, fall at times, but you will not ultimately embrace the world. You know, we sing the hymn, it goes like this, Marvelous Grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Is that not what, is that not what, James is saying that God gives a greater grace. It's greater than the struggle. It's greater than your sin. By God's grace, you really can resist the world. By God's grace, you really can suffer for Christ's sake. And just to prove it, Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. Paul is telling the Philippians that it has been grace gifted. It is a gift of grace to not only be saved, but to suffer for the sake of Christ. Randy Alcorn takes this one step further by saying, the grace that has freed us from bondage to sin is desperately needed to free us from our bondage to materialism. Again, is that not the issue 
That's the issue. That's the, again, going back to that question, will our trials and suffering drive us to him or away from him? And if it's away from him, what's drawing us? It's the comfort of this world. So how do we appropriate God's grace? How do we get it? Well, James tells us here, as we have said, God's grace is unmerited, so we, there's nothing we can do to get it. So there's no amount of work that we can do to gain God's favor. It is completely undeserved. And James says, then, that God is opposed to the proud. In other words, He is opposed to those who believe they deserve His favor. You get that? If you believe that you deserve His favor, if you believe that you live a life such that you deserve His favor, then He's opposed to you. See, those folks have convinced themselves that they are special and deserve to be saved. They are assured of themselves. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. In James chapter 2, this verse is, in my mind, the key to understanding what's going on with James in this book or this letter. It says, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for for their body, what use is that? And then he goes on to say, He goes on to say, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. These people have convinced themselves that the life that they're living, the things that they're doing, are right before God. And therefore, they deserve to be saved. But in reality, it doesn't work that way. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall, fall. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives what? He gives grace to the what? To the humble. Humility, beloved, should be defined as the understanding of our sinfulness and position before a holy God. We should further define it as a state of brokenness before our holy creator, understanding what we truly deserve from him. Somebody asks you, how are you doing, brother? Right? When, I, when somebody asks me that, better than I deserve. You know what I deserve? I deserve the wrath of a holy God. So the solution to this issue is then a, to humble yourself before the holiness of God. You don't deserve His favor. Yet He freely gives to those who uh, humble themselves under His mighty hand. Now, I titled this point, You Must Admit the Solution. I think this makes an important distinction. Those who are truly saved are those who truly understand their need for salvation. Did you get that? Those who are truly saved fully understand their need for salvation. They realize their standing before God, and they realize their need for grace and mercy. 
In other words, they rightly assess themselves and they recognize the truthfulness of Romans 3.23 for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They agree with Anselm who had this to say about our debt to God due to our sin. He says, the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay for it. And pay for it he did. The cross. Canceled your debt having nailed it to the cross. Beloved <clears throat> church, as we approach 2021 with all its uncertainty, the answer is still the same as it was with James's readers. As I said earlier, in James's day, there were many in the churches who were flirting with the world. They were attracted to the comforts of this world, but their attraction to this world was driving them away from Christ. Do you recall the question I brought up in the introduction? Let me ask you directly. Let me ask you directly. We don't know what 2021 could be much better, right? I hope it is. I hope that everything changes and goes back to normal and we have great, a great economy and I hope so. But what if it doesn't? What if it brings further trials, what if it begins to bring true suffering into your life? And as you face that suffering, and as you face those difficulties, here's the question. Let me ask you directly. Will your trials draw you nearer to God and His righteousness, or will they drive you away from Him and to your sin? That's the question. Said another way, what kind of faith do you really have? What kind of faith do you really have? In just a moment, we're going to sing the hymn, Jesus, I might cross a taken. There is a couple of lines there I want you to focus on. It says, man may trouble and distress me. Twill but drive me to thy breast. Life with trials hard may press me. Heaven will bring me sweeter rest. I hope that these are lines are true for you and for me. I know it's a struggle. I know that being asked to give up, if that is what happens, if being asked to give up our creaturely comforts and to suffer for Christ could be very diff will be very difficult. But I pray that it will but drive you to his breast, that the trials will remind you of heaven's rest. Pray you'll consider this as we approach 2021. You know, many people make New Year's resolutions. Let me give you three crucial resolutions straight from James's pen. Look at verses 7 and 8 as he finishes up. He says this in verse 7. Submit, therefore, to God. James, do you mean when it gets really tough and God brings these trials upon me that I have to submit to him? Yes. James, are you sure? 
Are you certain that when I suffer, that it can be, it's, going to, it's going to be good, and it's going to make me more like Christ? Yes, submit to Him. Second, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Remember that Venus flytrap analogy? If, if the fly didn't get on the jaws, the jaws don't work. Flee. Resist the devil and he will flee. Verse 8. Third. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. When it gets hard, when it gets sure enough hard, your first inclination should be to draw near to Christ. And He will draw near to you. Beloved, Christ beckons you. He says, Come to me, you weary and heavy burdened or heavy laden. Come near to the cross where Christ has paid for all your sin. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you and we worship you this morning. May we, when times of difficulty come upon us, may it but drive us to your breast. May it remind us of heaven's future rest. May we persevere. May we obtain that crown that you have promised to those who love you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.